Welcome to the CEC Report. It's the 3rd of February. I'm Robert Barwick and I'm joined today by CEC Leader Craig Isherwood. Welcome Craig. Yeah, thanks Robbie. In this week's CEC Report, the Glass-Steagall fight to separate banks before the next crash is heating up. And Trump is right. Refugee deal is dumb. We should take them here. So first, the Glass-Steagall fight to separate banks before the next crash is heating up. And Craig, before we begin, we'll just reiterate for all the viewers, anything we cover in this program uh, is explained in detail in our weekly publication, the Australian Alert Service. So, and because we're on a fo we have a specific, a particular focus, we always focus on Glass-Steagall, but with the new Trump administration, as we'll go through, this is a, a big issue. So mm -hmm. this is very important, the chance to get this passed. We're updating regularly on the state of the global financial threats Right, that could cause another crisis and the, and the state of the fight to reinstate Glass-Steagall. So anything we cover there, you want to know more, call in and make sure you read the details in our weekly publication. You can order a free copy if you call in on the toll-free number that's on the screen and we'll display it more later. So um, the, the Glass-Steagall fight to separate banks before the next crash is heating up. We are, we've got a bunch of warning signs, Craig, that are adding up to um, the uh, near likelihood of another crash far worse than the last one. I'll just go through some examples. In the United Kingdom, banking experts are warning that eight years after the last crash and five years after they passed legislation to supposedly fix the banks, the banks are still not safe enough, right? And there's a, I'll put a graphic on the screen. They did a, um, a stress test in December of the Britain's, Britain's biggest banks and one of them, Royal Bank of Scotland, which the government is the majority owner is, in failed that stress test. Mm. But then banking experts said, hang on, that stress test is based on the um, book value of the banks, not the market value of the banks, mm. which at the moment is half the book value of the banks. If you run it based on the market value, only one bank passed the stress test. They all failed the this, this, this stress test. And you can see that graphic on your screen. Now, London's banking problems relate to Europe's banking problems, which the center, um, the epicenter, which is Italy and it the Italian banks. Um, but the European banking problem in general is a derivatives problem, right? They're all infected with these derivatives gambling instruments. They're all traded in London. That's why it's a London problem. It's also a Wall Street problem because Wall Street's banks have a $2 trillion exposure to the European banks, which is a, a massive issue. Wall Street banks have their own derivatives um, crisis, which is huge. Um, and you've got the case where take the, um, all the biggest banks, which there's the big six banks can have most of the derivatives, there's hundreds of trillions of dollars in derivatives on their books. Um, look at these ratios of the derivatives to their assets. So the, the Bank of America's assets, derivatives are 16 times their assets. JP Morgan's are 20 times their assets. Citibank's are 28 times their assets. Morgan Stanley's are 34 times their assets. The big one, Goldman Sachs, the bank which has got now five people working in the Trump administration, 51 times their assets. Their derivatives exposure is 51 times assets. And assets, Craig, is not capital. Capital is an even smaller percentage again than assets, right? Mm -hmm. this, is, this is insane, the state of the banking there. And then to bring it home, in Australia, we've long said, you know, our, our banks are also derivatives addicted. Um, the biggest vulnerability for our banks is the property market, though, which is a bubble, and there's no, you can't put it any other way. It's a bubble, and all bubbles burst, and when it bursts, the banks are going to crash with it. Well, in the, the figures have just come out. In the last 12 months, mortgage delinquencies went up 
by 25%, went up 25%. Now that's people falling behind their mortgage payments. People falling behind by more than three months went up 41%. And that's at record low interest rates. Interest rates haven't gone up in Australia. Now we're not saying that 25% of all homeowners with mortgages are going defaulting. What we're saying is- It's an increase in the numbers. The rate is increasing, yeah. which is a bad sign. And that's, and that's a fast rate of increase. And so well. therefore, when you're talking about increasing rates of interest, Robbie, on, you know, which is happening, which if is If interest happen, rates went up. Yeah, that's the problem, is that these, these rates, because of the, the very lax uh, lending processes of the banks over the last many, many years, you're going to see a huge increase in this delinquency rate. Exactly. So that's the context where we've got some excellent news, which is that um, this week, US politicians in the US Congress introduced into the US Congress the 21st Century Glass-Steagall Act, or what they call the Return to Prudent Banking Act. Right? Because these congressmen and women, um, led by Marcy Kaptur from Ohio, Walter Jones from North Carolina, Tulsa Gabbard from Ohio, Ohio um, they, have, uh, they know that the only way to protect the American people from the next crash is what we say will protect the world from the next crash, the, the real people and the real economy, which is the Glass-Steagall separation. Take the, the derivatives casino and separate it completely from the real economy. Then whatever happens there will not affect everybody else, mm. right? So we're gonna play a video where Marcy Kaptur, who is spearheading this in the US Congress, um, held a press conference this week introducing the Glass-Steagall Act, and we'll just play the opening statements of a video. We gather today on our country's behalf and for many, many citizens who didn't have the wherewithal to be here this morning, but nonetheless who would benefit by our common efforts. Uh, this year marks the ninth anniversary of the greatest financial crisis in a generation. We're all old enough and our memories are good enough to remember that. That economic disaster uh, nearly caused the destruction of our country's entire financial infrastructure and led to what history now calls the Great Recession. During the last nine years, uh, if we look back and remember, uh, Wall Street banks have succeeded and actually have made a great deal of money. Uh, meanwhile, many, many Americans have continued, literally millions, to experience what we would term financial failure. J.P. Morgan Chase, Bank of America, Citigroup, Wells Fargo, Goldman Sachs, and Morgan Stanley have all reported record profits during the recession and the years following. Wall Street in the last nine years has regained all of its pre-crisis wealth with interest, while Main Street has yet to see a real recovery in so many communities from coast to coast. And just to give you a couple numbers, uh, 15 years ago, the assets of the country's six largest banks were approximately 17% of our total production, gross domestic product, 17%. Today, these top six banks hold $10.1 trillion in assets, over half of our GDP. This is too much power in too few hands. So not only have they profited handsomely, but they have come to command the major control centers of our economy. Due to the financial crisis, J.P. Morgan Chase holds approximately 208,000 mortgages considered seriously delinquent uh, just in Ohio, while in excess of 700,000 homes are underwater 
in our state. And Congressman Ryan and I know that problem well, and I know it's repeated in Hawaii and repeated in North Carolina uh, as well. During the 1990s, Wall Street's biggest banks and speculation houses uh, concocted a fraudulent and greedy scheme to create false money. Then in 2008, their crime exploded. And you remember the collateralized debt obligations, the uh, securitization of loans, uh, nearly destroyed capitalism itself. Their recklessness was so extreme, it wiped out the net worth of 44% of Hispanic American households, think about that, since the founding of the Republic, 33% of African American households, and 11% of Caucasian households, respectively. Being from Ohio, I can say in the Cleveland area, every area of Ohio, Toledo, Columbus, it doesn't matter where you go, Ohio was hit very, very hard. Uh, actually harder than other parts of the country which were terribly harmed uh, because of the nature of our manufacturing base and the type of state that we are. Um, so this taking by Wall Street was of historic dimension, never reimbursed to this day. It sucked out the wealth from millions of American families. And of course the movie Capitalism, a Love Story documented that in real time going back to 2008 and the days thereafter. It is time for Congress to ensure that these failures in our banking system are never repeated. And that is why we are here today, and I thank my colleagues so very, very much uh, for joining me. To build on the momentum and the movement to reinstate Glass-Steagall to separate prudent commercial banking from speculation. So Craig, that's a very good sign. And what they're doing is they're laying down the gauntlet to the Trump administration and we need that kind of thing to be done here. Absolutely, Robbie. Look, look at the integrity of the people that are standing up there. I mean, Walter Jones admitted he got it wrong by voting for Gla uh, the, the repeal of Glass-Steagall in 1999. He's come out and saying, look, I got it wrong. Let's, repeal, let, let's put this legislation back in. And the, the quality of the people that stood up there is what we need in the Australian Parliament. People to stand up and say, we need this, irrespective of what Malcolm Turnbull or Bill Shorten stay, say. Those individuals that stand up and support Glass-Steagall will get support of the people and don't have to worry about whether they're going to get, you know, bonged on the head by either Turnbull or Shorten. That's yeah. what we need here, the real integrity of um, some of our members to stand up and start speaking out. No, exactly. All right, so after the break, though, we're going to talk about the actual hard-knuckle fight that's going to go on around this. Welcome back to the CEC Report, where we're discussing the Glass-Steagall fight to separate banks before the next crash is heating up. And Craig, before the break, we just played the video of the US Congress people that have introduced new Glass-Steagall legislation into the US Congress now as a, it's not a challenge to Trump, they said to Trump, you know, you've, you've promised this, here's the legislation, right? Mm -hmm. And that these are the same people that introduced it repeatedly through all the Obama years and Obama blocked it. So the question is, what's Trump going to do? Well, last week on this program, you and Elisa discussed how um, Trump's nominee for Treasury Secretary, Steve Mnuchin, who is one of these former Goldman Sachs guys in, the, um, in his White House, was carpeted by Maria Cantwell, another congresswoman who supports Glass-Steagall, over Glass-Steagall. And he said, Mnuchin said that he didn't support a return to Glass-Steagall as is. He said, we, I, I think we should have a 21st century version of it. Right? So we don't know yet what that means. Now, 
the congressman, the, um, the Democrats in the Congress actually boycotted this guy's hearings and the vote on it because, not because of that per se, but because he is involved in a bank called One West in California that mass foreclosed on a lot of people after the crash. And this was part of the, there was you know, hundreds of thousands, millions of Americans foreclosed on unjustly in America after the crash. The banks got bailed out. The people who were the victims lost their homes. So the right? sense of the fox being in charge of the hen house, right? No, exactly. And they're very mad at it. So these Democrats went after him on that, which is good, except there's a vulnerability here because they didn't go after him on something more important. His partner in this bank is George Soros. Mm. And the reason the Democrats didn't go after him on that is George, they're, they're all beholden in one way or another this guy, George Soros, who's a billionaire mega speculator, but one of the most sinister characters in the world who uses his money to destroy nations either economically through currency raids or colour politically through colour revolutions, right? And he's part of a, he's British backed, he's backed by the City of London and he actually he's an imperial agent for London and he's part of their war against Russia. Um, now, Soros hates Trump, so it's really curious that Trump's made this appointment. Just to give you a flavour of Soros, I want to play a video, a, a clip from 1998 when Soros was interviewed on American 60 Minutes. And you're going to see the kind of person he is because he's asked two, there's two parts to this, there's two clips here, they'll put them together. He's asked about the fact that he had just done these currency raids in Asia that caused the Asian crisis, right? And he expresses his amoral philosophy. And you'll see him express that. But then he's asked about this curiosity where, as a 14-year-old in, in World War II in Hungary, mm. he was, he's Jewish, but he was, he, to sort of save him from the Holocaust, his father gave him a, a um, false identity and put him with another guy. And he used to, he, this, this, this um, uh, protector of his would take George Soros around, 14-year-old George Soros, as he confiscated the homes of Jews who were then shipped off to the camps, right? And he's asked a reasonable question, do you feel bad about that? And look, it's not, you don't hold a 14 year old to account, you don't hold an adult to account for what they did as a 14 year old, mm -hmm. but look at his attitude to it. It's the same philosophy. So we'll just play this video quite quickly. The Prime Minister of, of Malaysia yes. um, said that the region spent 40 years trying to build up its economy and along comes a moron like Soros. Okay with a lot of money, and it's all over. He called you a criminal. It's easier for him to blame an outside force <clears throat> than to admit that they were mismanaging uh, their economy and their currency. The uh, French finance minister uh, talked about hanging uh, speculators from lampposts. Soros says the Asian currencies would have collapsed even if he hadn't been in the market. They were overvalued. He says people tend to follow his lead because he's been so successful. I think that uh, I've been blamed, blamed for everything. I am basically there to, uh, to make money. I cannot and do not look at the social consequences of, of what I do. I mean, that's, that sounds uh, like an experience that would send lots of people to the psychiatric couch for many, many years. Was it difficult? Uh, not, not, not at all. Not at all. It, uh, maybe as a child, you don't you don't see the connection, uh, but it was it created no no problem at all. No feeling of guilt. No. For example, that uh, I'm Jewish, uh, and here I am watching these people go. I could just as easily be there. I should be there. None of that. 
Well, uh, of course, I, uh, I could be on the other side, or I could be the one from whom it, the thing is being taken away. Uh, um, but there was no sense that I shouldn't be there, because uh, that was... Uh, uh, well, actually, funny way, it's just like in markets, that if I weren't there, of course I wasn't doing it, but somebody else would, would, would be taking it away anyhow. So Craig, that guy has, I mean, he is a real operator. He owned Obama, he owned Hillary Clinton. Um, and, you know, that's one of the reasons we were relieved that Trump won, frankly, because he's not there. But his guy's there. So this is a real issue. This guy, the fact that Mnuchin is in par a business partner of his is a real issue that we have to um, put a lot of light on. But it means that this is not going to be an easy fight to get Glass-Steagall in place. So one of our associates, our, our magazine, the Alert Service, is associated with the Executive Intelligence Review magazine in the United States. In fact, we're the Australian Bureau for it. So our correspondent, Bill Jones, who's our White House co correspondent, he questioned Trump's spokesman, Sean Spicer, on Glass-Steagall a couple of days ago in the White House. And just look at the back and forth between those two. Yeah. On Glass-Steagall, uh, the president during his campaign said that he supported a re-establishing of Glass-Steagall legislation which would separate the investment right. banks from the commercial banks. Uh, there's legislation on both the House and the Senate side. It's in the Republican program. Mr. Mnuchin, when he was uh, uh, queried on the Hill by uh, uh, Senator Cantwell, who's the author of one of the bills, was a little bit more ambiguous on this issue. And I wish uh, you could say something on where this. Yeah, I mean, I think part of the reason that it's in, we, we've got to get we've got to get a Treasury Secretary confirmed. And, and I think that when you when we sit here and get asked questions about policy and you go department after department, whether it's Treasury, you know, energy, EPA, that HHS, HUD, education, the list goes on and on. And so you ask about issues and where the president's agenda is. Well, the reason that the president nominated these highly qualified people was to implement his agenda. And Senate Democrats continue to hold that up. And I think when you wreck it, you can't, you're asking us about how we're going to move forward on an agenda, whether it's Glass-Steagall or so many other issues. And at the same time, the Democrats are holding up the confirmation of these highly qualified people. Until that occurs, it makes it a heck of a lot harder. Major Garrett. Is, but the president yeah, still Major supports Glass-Steagall. The president's position is consistent, yes. Now, Craig, that is supposed to be interpreted as when he said he's, he's, that Trump's position is consistent, that Trump still supports Glass-Steagall. Apparently, Jamie Dimon, the boss of, Walls, of J.P. Morgan, thinks so because he's racing down to Washington this week to meet with Trump on this very question, right? Because the big banks don't want it. So anyway, you know, what's your comment on all this? There's all sorts of complicated ways that aren't working. Isn't it time just to go with the most straightforward thing that does work? Well, Trump gave an undertaking, remember, in his election campaign to, to introduce Glass-Steagall. He's going forward to try and bring in many of these policies as possible. The White House is in a bit of a mess at the moment. It's going through a whole sort of uh, reorganisation. This policy very much can come to the fore very quickly. He knows, he knows uh, what the people want. You have these very uh, important uh, members of the Congress that will continue to lobby Trump. So this is a political battle royale between Wall Street on one hand and Trump representing the people on the other. So I don't know which way it's going to go, Robbie, but all I know is that there has to be more and more pressure put on Trump yep. uh, to, to, to really stand up for what he said he was going to.
All right, let's take a break. Welcome back to the CEC report. Finally, Trump is right. Refugee deal is dumb. We should take them here. So, Craig, we don't want to keep defending Trump. And sometimes we're going to have issues with him. And we, one of the issues, for instance, at the moment is Iran. There's a, there's a bit of an agenda against Iran, which could be dangerous and lead to a larger conflict. But that aside, if Trump's enemies insist on pretending that he is the cause of the world's problems, when he's only just arrived, then we're going to keep defending him. So, OK, case in point is this deal over the refugees. Look at the way it's being reported. Trump is, is, is he bullied Turnbull. He's ungrateful to us. The good old Aussies that, that go with, with that support him in every stupid thing that Americans do, every stupid war they go into. And apparently it's even an example of his racism because he's anti-immigration. Now, that's all garbage, right? Think, think through for a minute what Trump was presented with this deal. He's presented as, okay, Mr. Trump, Obama did a deal with the Prime Minister of Australia, Malcolm Turnbull. They've got 1,200 refugees locked up on two islands north of Australia that they won't let land in Australia. They want you to take them instead. And Trump goes, what? Refugees locked up in prisons? That's how Australians must think they're really dangerous. Well, why would I take them here? An entirely reasonable reaction. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm. And remember the deal with Turnbull and Trump and Obama was not a problem-solving deal. It was a face-saving deal. We know these people aren't a threat. The government admits they're not a threat. They have to make an example of them. We are, we are subjecting them to cruel and unusual punishment up there where they have no hope for the future to make an example of them so other people don't come by boats. They're all vetted refugees. The government admits that, right? Yeah. This is absolute cruelty and, and um, disgusting. Well, just on the face of it, Robert, you've got a population of 360 million, I think it is, or in the US, we've got 24, and we're saying to them, you've got to take out 1,200. I mean, that's a bit crazy, isn't it? It is. I mean, just on the face of it, it is very dumb, it's very stupid. It's also, you know, Trump is not going to play by the rules in terms of the protocols that Obama was going through and the... Well, all a lot of these, of stuff. what they call protocols, was designed to cover these sort of inna in in innately well, corrupt little shenanigans. Maybe, maybe, maybe the ANZUS Alliance, the treaties, and all that. Maybe it's time for a change. Maybe Trump should shut down Pine Gap, right? Pull the troops out of Darwin. Maybe that's all very useful. If, I mean, Trump, if Trump, if this is the if this is the trigger for that, the catalyst for that, then good. that could be a very, very good thing. I mean, that's the point here: is that Trump is not playing by the rules, and that's what's that's why all the attacks against him because. There's no rule book as far as you know, the, the, the establishment is concerned. And, and Trump looks at this at face value and says, well, this is dumb. I mean, why on earth would Obama agree to such a deal? I mean, you know, he knows why, of course, but on and the face of it, the, the, the issue is that, look, we've got a very small population. You know, everything in our country is geared towards free trade and everything is geared towards you know, the bankers in this country. If we had a nationalistic program of large-scale infrastructure development projects, we would be short of people to implement them. Yep. We could we'd take these refugees in. We could, yep. you know, ask them or demand that they or you know populate sparse, you know, take them to areas where we've got these projects. Say, look, we'll look after you. You commit to this program for five years or whatever. We can put them into minimum for employment, educate their kids, so they're actually grateful towards what we help them re-establish here in Australia instead of actually creating future enemies of Australia yeah. because we treat them so badly. All right, so let's not let the media reaction to Trump paper over the fact that our policy is much worse than anything he's carrying on with. But that's it. 
just to reiterate, call in for a copy of the Australian Alert Service to, for the details of what we cover. But thanks for tuning in and tune in next week for more of the CEC report.